Hello everyone and welcome back to The Bridgehead. My name is Jonathan Van Maren and today I'm going to be having a discussion that I've been waiting uh, for quite a while to have. In fact, it's a discussion I've been waiting to have since May 26, the day after the Republic of Ireland uh, voted to bring in abortion on demand. And many of you who have been following this podcast or, or reading our writings over at the Bridgehead will know that I, I went to Ireland with, with my wife and my, my infant daughter and two of my colleagues. And we went <clears throat> on behalf of the organization we work for, the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, just to do whatever we could to help out in the run-up uh, to the referendum. So we went, we joined the Vote No Roadshow and we traveled from town to town where we were just talking with people, giving them information about the referendum, encouraging them to vote no, encouraging them to preserve the right to life in Ireland's constitution. Uh, we would be waving flags, holding signs, just generally both trying to encourage pro-life voters as well as to sway undecided voters uh, towards the pro-life side. And at the last week before the referendum, we were door knocking in Dublin uh, every single night and, and we had quite an encouraging response, which is just another reason why the, the result of the referendum was so devastating. And I can't say enough about the Irish pro-lifers who were on the ground there. We would get back to the office around 11 p.m. or later and everybody would still be working. They'd be so tired they could barely stand, but there they would be still just, they, they really left it all on the field in defense of, of Ireland's pre-born babies. And so, of course, around the world, there's different takes on this. Uh, there's one take that says, well, abortion, because it's a human right, is inevitable. And Ireland held off longer than most. But at the same time, you know, it was just a matter of time before Ireland got with the times. Um, we saw that narrative took a little bit of a hit earlier this week when, when Argentina did not legalize abortion, but instead decided by only four votes in the Senate to, to keep abortion out of Argentina, at least at the time being. And there were some beautiful videos of, of wild cheering crowds of pro-lifers after that, contrasted with pro-choice people chucking Molotov cocktails and engaging in the violence that they've uh, become so famous for. But what really happened in Ireland's abortion referendum? Because you have, to, you have to realize here that this wasn't just about a culture shift, although that's part of the story. There obviously is more pro-choice, more pro-abortion people uh, in 2018 than there was 10 years ago than there was 20 years ago. But what you have to realize is that a, a group of pro-lifers went up against the media, virtually the entire media. There was almost a media blackout on the pro-life side in terms of the stories they were trying to push out and the things they wanted people to pay attention to, not to mention uh, their pushing of the Savita case, which we'll get into later. Uh, then there was the fact that the politicians had flipped. We went from having uh, an Ireland full of ca uh, pro-life politicians, pardon me, to an Ireland where pro-life politicians were scarce virtually overnight. They, they stabbed their pro-life voters in the back. They went back on everything they'd said and everything they'd promised and consequently just started pushing as hard as they possibly could to bring abortion to the Emerald Isle. And so what we actually have is the ultimate underdog story. We have a group of pro-lifers who have managed to keep abortion out of Ireland for nearly 35 years, an effort that is responsible for saving hundreds of thousands of lives, 
ironically and sadly ironically, uh, many of the young people who would have showed up to vote to bring abortion to Ireland were only alive and able to do so because of the Eighth Amendment that they wanted to get rid of in the first place. But the, the story of, of the pro-life movement that fended off the forces of big abortion, the United Nations, the European Union, Amnesty International, International Planned Parenthood, work your way through the list. This was all these multinational giants. It was huge corporations. It was NGOs. And, of course, it was international pressure, including from our own Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who went over to talk to Leo Varadkar about legalizing abortion. Uh, so... At the end of the day, we have a very small group of people that successfully managed to save hundreds of thousands of lives, and on May 25, forces conspired them, conspired to rob them of the victory that they had achieved uh, so many times in the past decade. So what really happened? Well, that's a question that I'm going to be discussing, and I'm going to be having that discussion with Neve Ivrian. She is a, a pro-life activist in Ireland I've known for a long time. She works for Youth Defense and Life Institute. We've just we've talked a lot over the years about the sorts of things that the pro-life movement's doing in Canada and what they're doing in Ireland. And I was thrilled to be able to meet her and so many other Irish pro-life activists I'd only known through the sort of pro-life social media world in Ireland when we went for the referendum. And we finally managed to, to get a time to to just sit and talk about everything that happened and everything that went right and went wrong in the lead-up to the abortion referendum. And so this is that discussion. I hope you find it as clarifying and helpful as I did. The first question uh, we'd like to ask is, could you just explain for our listeners um, the context for this Save the Eighth campaign? So in 1983, Ireland became a nation in which abortion was illegal in all circumstances. It gave a full right to life for pre-born children. And despite this reality, an entire pro-life movement and one of the strongest and most active pro-life movements in the world developed in a nation where abortion was illegal and successfully kept abortion out of Ireland for 35 years, saving hundreds of thousands of lives. Could you just give us a bit of that story? Sure. So probably, as you know, and your listeners will know, Jonathan, um, in the 60s, Kind of, a, and in that whole social context, uh, many countries looked at legalizing abortion and then went on to do so. And it was legalized in Britain in 1967. Britain, is, of course, is Ireland's ne nearest neighbour. In America, in 1973, and so on. And many people here, kind of, I think I wasn't born at the time, but they saw what had what had happened, and they thought to themselves, okay, well, very soon this this push and you know, recognizing that the abortion industry is such an enormously powerful global industry, it will come here as well. And there aren't, there isn't anything in our constitution to prevent that from happening. So people got together, and in 1983, they managed to put uh, to the people in the vote uh, an amendment which guaranteed the right to life of the unborn child, where the state recognized that the unborn child had a right to life and would protect that right to life. And it was inserted into the constitution by a very, very substantial majority, two-thirds two of people voted in favor of the amendment. And, you know, in the context of what's happening legally elsewhere, that was something amazing, of course, because here you had, like, the con Constitution recognizing the, what was scientifically accurate, you know, mm -hmm. the, the fact that the unborn child is a human being, just is one of us, like every other person, and that their, their right to life should be recognized. But, of course, you know, just like every other country in the world, just like we're seeing now in Argentina, you know, in Chile and in Poland and elsewhere, um, those who campaign in favor of abortion are incredibly strong and have incredibly powerful international allies. Yes. And there was no chance that they were going to sit back and just say, okay, well, look, Ireland's, Ireland's got a pro-life um, 
section its constitution, its laws are pro-life, and we're just going to accept that because they seem to have this insatiable appetite to have abortion legalized everywhere. And we've seen that. We've seen the kind of international focus that's been placed on Ireland and the international pressures. Yeah. So, um, they, and they, they, you know, the, the people who were on the losing side that time, I think we can learn from them in one way in that they, they immediately said, like, well, we're not folding up our tents and going away. We're going to campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment. This is as far back as 1983, you know. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, it was 35 years ago. And, and they worked to do so. And in 1992, um, a case came before the courts where a 14-year-old girl um, had been raped and her parents wanted to bring her to England from an abortion. And from that, um, there became various kind of legal and constitutional challenges arose to the Eighth Amendment. So I think when that happened, it became like very clear to pro-life people that these challenges were going to continue and there was going to be huge efforts made to overturn the Eighth Amendment. So well, at that time, we founded Youth Defence, which was... Um, and is uh, a, a youth, a youth pro-life movement, and you know we're engaged very um, rapidly in things like organising rallies and street outreaches and pro-life education and engagement. And since then, like since 1992 until this year, the the movement really grew, um, not just in terms of the youth movement, but in terms of Life Institute and the Save the Eighth campaign and many many other campaigns, which I think. It, Utilize probably just like yourself, Jonathan and Canberra, utilize a lot of different platforms to get the, to get the message across. Um, and the messages were basically focused around the humanity of the baby, uh, the fact that abortion hurts women as well, and that that Ireland could do better than this for right. fathers and babies. And one of the reasons that I think you know Planned Parenthood have described Ireland or used to describe Ireland sadly um, as the jewel in the crown of the pro-life movement. And, of course, one of the reasons why they did that was Ireland's experience showed the world that you didn't need abortion right. to best care for mothers and babies. Because like, this is a first world country with a, you know, a constitution and our, where abortion was completely banned. So abortion was not permitted under any reason whatsoever. And the baby was protected and the mother was protected. And in that context... You know, the, the record shows and even the United Nations statistics showed that we were one of the safest places in the world for a woman to have a baby. So our maternal mortality rates were very low, like much lower than the U.S., lower than Britain's. And, of course, this was a huge difficulty for abortion campaigners because they always claim that women need abortion in order to preserve their lives, that if you don't have legalized abortion, then women's lives are in danger. And Ireland's experience shows that wasn't true. Yeah. And that's why Ireland became so important then, you know, for international abortion campaigners, because pro-life people right throughout the world could point to Ireland and say, well, look, here you have a country where maternal health care is excellent, it's one of the best in the world, and they don't have legalized abortion. So, so we really, did that in, you know, in formal debates yeah. on campuses in Canada. We always used Ireland as an example of look, you can protect both of them and the woman's health does not suffer at all. And they hated Ireland for that. Absolutely. So there you go. I mean, you, you saw it yourself at first hand and it became a difficulty um, for abortion campaigners because once people realized that even where abortion was legal, women could still get any medical interventions they needed. You know, that, that was a really important point for, for pro-life people like yourself and people right across Europe and in the States and elsewhere to be able to explain, you know, that, that abortion is, is, is the deliberate killing of a baby um, and that it was different from a medical intervention, but where the abortion was, was banned, you could still have those medical interventions and women would be absolutely safe. And, I mean, you're absolutely correct, Chance, and, like, I've, saw it, I've seen it too very often online, you know, as, as, 
as the world became smaller and debates became, everything became, um, all the debates became visible to everybody, I saw very often you know, people say, well, look at Ireland, like they don't have yep. abortion, they don't, obviously don't need it to keep women safe. And that's why you had, you know, groups like the Centre for Reproductive Rights, like these incredibly well-financed American organisations, you know, backing legal cases to the United Nations, but always waiting, I think, for a case that they could exploit. You know, right. And this has happened in every country. Normally it's a case they will exploit revolving somebody very vulnerable like a rape victim, and they will try to exploit that case to have abortion legalized in the first instance. Well, that's the, Ameri- in that, that, country- that's the American example, right? Norma McCorvey, who was Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade, um, that was presented as, she was presented as a rape victim when she wasn't, and she never aborted the baby that Roe v. Wade was fought to abort, and she changed her mind and fought for the pro-life movement for years. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, we have one of those stories here in Ireland, too, where this incredibly brave young woman who spoke out during the referendum. And when she was 13, she was in state care. Uh, she was she was uh, pregnant after rape and she was brought for an abortion by the state. And, you know, she tried to speak out during the referendum, which is such a hard thing for someone to do. I mean, she's 30 now, but still to you know, to, to, to talk about that experience is incredibly difficult. And she um, said you know, that, that the abortion caused her more harm than the rape. But probably just like with Norma McCorvey, and this will bring us on to the next case we're going to talk about, you know, the, and, and to the role of the media in all of this, Jonathan. Like, the media gave her incredibly powerful story, almost no attention whatsoever. Right, right. You know, where if it was somebody who was speaking out from the other side, and everyone's entitled to share their own personal story. Of course they are. Everyone's, all women's voices should be heard. But, you know, you, you'll find the same there. You know, if you're on the pro-life side and you've got a very powerful story to tell, you're the kind of woman that shouldn't be heard. That's right. To, I remember when, to, when we were canvassing in Dublin, one of the volunteers said to me, I'm coming from a different country. If you pick up an Irish newspaper, it must seem to you like every woman in Ireland is pregnant as the result of sexual assault and carrying a baby with a fatal fetal abnormality that could kill her. Because that's the story. Those are the stories that the media chose to tell almost exclusively. Almost exclusively, and they were very, you know, sometimes they would refuse to take uh, personal stories from the pro-life side. Other times they would take them and edit them so that. Um, the, the person who was sharing the story didn't get to say, like, well, I want to preserve the Eighth Amendment. She might just share a story, but she didn't get to talk about the fact that she wanted to save the Eighth Amendment because it protected her and her baby, where there was always a, a big emotional pitches, you know, from the other side saying, like, you have to give it to the Eighth Amendment. Sometimes on completely spurious grounds, people claiming that medical treatment was, was withheld and so forth. But right. that's the, if you like that, just to go back to your question, Jonathan, that's the context that we were in, that we had a constitution where the people had inserted an amendment protecting the right to life or recognizing the right to life of the unborn child and that amendment has been under sustained attack and uh, not actually so much from Irish campaigners because Irish abortion campaigners tend not to have a lot of public support they have massive media support but until they started getting money from abroad from people like George Soros and Chuck Feeney mm-hmm. they, they, they failed ever to build up like a grassroots movement like the pro-life movement had or anything like that you know and you, you, you mentioned there earlier like there was a, a kind of a dynamic and very progressive movement, and it really was, you know, I mean, I think when you look back, like, pro-life groups throughout the world, they get, we get no state funding or help or anything like that, everything right. is funded by ordinary people just like yourselves, but the other side get all of this. You know? and it, and it, but it's ridiculous, because it, again, if you read the newspaper, and I found this ironic, because they were constantly trying to discern if the pro-lifers were getting any foreign help. 
And to the extent that there was any so-called foreign influence, which I found funny, was was a handful of, of pro-life volunteers who basically just yeah. just joined the Canvas teams and went door to door handing out literature. Whereas their foreign help came in the form of every major international organization, from the United Nations to Amnesty International to George Soros, you know, funneling millions of dollars and dominating the airwaves yeah. for months. And again, it's just oh, it's, you said it. Like that's <laughs> it. That's, that's precisely it. And, and, and what's more, they've been doing so for at least a decade and more. Do you know what I mean? So it's an absolute joke to contrast like heroic people like yourselves, volunteers who give up their time and effort to come over to do the tough work on the ground and help Irish people with that. With yeah. <laughs> these NGOs <laughs> were literally getting millions to you know, so that so that they can try to they can try to um have abortion legalized in Ireland. Like it's a completely different ballgame. With uh, what, what kind of stuff did you start off with? One of the things I'm interested in, just as the background to the story, because you know the, mm. the few weeks uh, that I was was in Ireland, um, and I, well, you and I had already talked many times in the past. I mm. knew a few people um, from the from the Irish pro life movement that I'd met at various conferences, but just working on the ground with all the volunteers and the canvassers, they're just some of like to be really blunt, some of the most beautiful people I'd ever met. Mm. And one of the things that I kept on thinking, too, was the, the, the story that gets missed here is that those who are fighting for abortion are fighting for something profoundly selfish. And mm. the people who are giving up all their time, I met one guy who sold his business so that he could work on the Save the Ape campaign for four months. I met people yeah. who were skipping university classes so that they, they could get out as many votes as they could just you know prior to May 25th. I met other people who, who, who had basically taken leave from their jobs without pay to work on this. And they were all doing yeah. this for other people's kids which is something yeah. that never got mentioned. It, like, people will do anything for their own children, that's true, but yes. they were doing this for the children of other people. Like, their, their children are safe, right? They won't have abortions, but they were doing they this yeah. for, for other people because they cared about other people's babies. And that story of unselfishness, I don't think, got told. And that's why I'm interested, like, how did youth defense really start up? Uh, it started in 92. I know what it started up in response to, but how did you guys go from a group of people who were like, we should do something to the kind of organization that could field, what was it, 4,000 canvassers? Um, yeah. I, 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 I met hundreds, and I was just there for a few weeks. Absolutely, and like you know, the rally, when you look at the context of Ireland, like 100,000 people at a pro-life rally, is, is like having five million people at the March for Life in the U.S. Yeah. Because it's, it's, this is a small country. And, the, like, the movement has always been, you know, it's, it's so nice you to say that, Jonathan, I think that's true. And probably, as I don't know, as we kind of emerge from the, the rubble of battle, we need to do more to recognize everybody who fought in the campaign. Because, I mean, I think you're right. They were heroic efforts made by people, you know, and sometimes for two years. You know, yeah. I know people who gave up work and college and everything for, for two years to come, uh, sometimes for free, sometimes on, to live in an absolute pittance, you know, to keep to get the campaign, campaign going and to do it. And, like, they gave it their all. These are people who gave 70 hours a week, you know, yeah. for, for the cause and for the campaign. And you're completely right. It's because they think that abortion is a terrible thing and they think that you have to do better for mothers and babies. And they have very selfless motives. This isn't about making their lives easier. This isn't about, certainly not about restricting or oppressing other people. It's about that they, that they actually understand just how dreadful abortion is. Mm -hmm. you know, the act in itself is so dreadful, but also the notion that your laws would, would make it legal and would encourage people to undergo this like, is such a dreadful thing because it speaks 
to all of us. Like, what does it say about all of us then, about our society, that we allow this, that we facilitate it, that very often we promote it? Do you know that, that, that this can happen, something as cruel and, and evil as, as abortion can actually not only happen, but be encouraged? And that's terrible, of course, for mother and for baby. And I think a lot of the people who fought in the campaign had the same motivations, I suppose, from probably working, you know, with YD or LI over, over, the, last, over the last 25 years. And really when we started off, I think our priority was, you know, to be active. Right. You know, to try to always speak to people who weren't listening, to try to speak to people who were only only hearing the media, to try to to get the message out there. To, to a lot of it was kind of education and and awareness, and that mattered a lot in a country where abortion wasn't legal. Yeah, because sometimes I think when abortion is legal, you have to protest abortion. But if you like, we were explaining it. Do you know what I mean? We were right. saying this is what it is. This is yeah. why it's wrong. And. A lot of that was, was very much based around, like, you know, grassroots, especially in the time before, before social media, Johnson. You know, between 92 and maybe whatever, 2000, you know, there wasn't much happening online. Right. So a lot of it was very, like, road shows, street sessions, going to schools, going to campuses, and just engaging um, with people on a one-to-one basis. And I will say this about all of the campaigns. And then, of course, social media opened up, and you, you know, media and media debates and everything like that as well. I do think social media brought us a whole new platform, you know, in terms of video messaging, in terms of uh, getting facts out there, everything like that. I, for me, it, it, was, it was amazing. And I, I would point to, like, at one stage in 2012, right, which is six years ago, and it was just before uh, Savita died. Um, and we'll come to the Savita's death in a moment, I think, and why that was such a cataclysmic event. Uh-huh. Or, um, but in 2012, um, we had had, you know, as we, we touched on this a moment ago, but they're like groups like the Center for Reproductive Rights, other groups, American groups, they were always bringing Ireland to the UN Court or to the European Court of Human Rights to try to challenge our abortion laws. And like a succession of these had happened. And I remember Time magazine interviewed Enda Kenny, who was the Taoiseach or what you would call a prime minister at that time. And they said to him, oh, you know, you've had this ruling and these other rulings from the, the UN and from the... European Court of Human Rights, and they're saying you have to change your abortion laws. And he 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 just went like, well, there's no there's no just there's no plans to do that. Right. And they were saying the Time magazine was saying, but you know you you have to. <laughs> and he was saying we've no plans to do that because he knew because just like in every other country, these big political parties they do their polling, they do their research, and he understood like that people in Ireland were happy enough with the eighth, you know what I mean, and didn't, you know, they might have had some ambivalence about some parts of, you know, should abortion be legalized in very difficult circumstances, but in general, they were okay with the eighth remaining in the Constitution. And I think the fact that that was still the position of most people in Ireland in 2012, like, you know, almost 50 years after abortion was legalized in Britain, so yeah. that way, is largely due to the fact that so many people engaged themselves in the pro-life movement and spent all of that time you know, firstly, like, and in huge grassroots efforts, like, um, there's like what we talked about, going, uh, road shows, going to doors, on campus, and just kept this understanding in people and that, and that Ireland should, should retain that protection, because it's a good thing, it's good for us, and good for our societies, and right. our mothers and our babies. And, I, and that worked, it worked right up to 2012, like, right up until, you know, past the time when Enda Kenny did that interview, and told Time magazine, you know, we're not going to change our laws. And then, and then Savita's death happened, and it was an event that the media managed to orchestrate in such an incredibly dishonest and manipulative way that it caused a sea change in the attitude of 
Middle Ireland. Right. Let's really, put... you know, and we'll talk about this in a moment. It's it's what led directly to the to the to the to the referendum result on May twenty fifth. So let's let's talk about the Savita case a bit in depth because it's it's important for a number of reasons. So there's there's the media angle where you have this journalist whose mother was an abortion activist and was basically just waiting for the right case to use to try and attack Ireland's Eighth Amendment. Then you have um, the complete misrepresentation of a case that didn't just go around Ireland. This went worldwide yeah. because here in Canada, we, we, we are on the streets every day talking to people. We're going door to door. We're on campuses. Yeah. We're at high schools. And we got the Savita case thrown in our face over and over mm. and over again because abortion mm. activists, after years of, of being forced to look at the fact that Ireland actually had the, you know, was the best country in the world for pregnant women, finally thought they had the example that refuted uh, those facts that they hated so much. Um, and the yeah. Savita case, yeah, as, as we now understand, was, uh, was a catalyst for a change that hadn't existed in 2012. So what exactly happened with the Savita case? Yeah, and, and I, I absolutely correct your answer. Like this case went, you know, was, there's an old saying, I think, from William Winston Churchill that a lie goes around the world ten times before the truth has time to get his boots on, you know. It's yeah, that's 100% right. 100% true about this case. So, like, this was a tragedy. This was a young woman who was miscarrying and who had doctors would describe as a septic pregnancy. She, was, she uh, had, um, had been infected by a bacteria called E. coli ESBL, but they missed that. They missed it in the hospital. And when she presented at the hospital, they took the approach of expectant, expectant management of her miscarriage, which is very common. Like, this is what happens in hospitals right around the world. There's nothing to do with the Eighth Amendment, you know, and you can see this in the guidelines for uh, that instruct doctors how to treat in, in the care of women who have miscarriages, not just uh, before Savita's case, but afterwards, and as I said, right around the world. So the expectant management approach is that you let the miscarriage occur naturally. And... What they didn't realize was that she had been infected by E. coli ESBR, which is an incredibly virulent bacteria, difficult to diagnose and difficult to treat. And there were three inquiries into her death afterwards, and all of them found that she actually died of sepsis, blood poisoning, because of E. coli ESBL. And they found that the hospital had missed 13 opportunities to spot the infection and to intervene to save her life. You know, so they'd missed things like um, they hadn't passed on the results of blood tests. They'd missed the fact that her, her, her pulse was elevated, everything like that. So it was, it was a tragedy, you know, and it was a case of medical mismanagement where they simply didn't spot that she was sick and they didn't intervene to treat her properly. Now, here's what we know about what happens when a woman presents with a life-threatening condition in Ireland. Right. We know, for example, that normally when women present uh, and they're, they're uh, to, to a hospital and they ha- are pregnant and they have sepsis, that the baby is delivered. That's what happens. Okay, because you have to intervene to save the mother's life there. And it doesn't matter what stage of the baby is at. It doesn't matter if the baby has a heartbeat. It doesn't matter about any of those things. You intervene to save the baby's life. And, as you know, the senior obstetricians that gave evidence to say this, yes, absolutely, that was the case. In fact, her own doctor who the woman who treated her, um, the obstetrician who was in charge of Savita's case, said, yeah, yes, if they had followed everything properly and they realized that she had sepsis, they would have intervened to deliver the baby. And that possibly would have saved her life. You'd, the problem with sepsis is that you actually don't know. Sometimes se- sepsis can be so um, overwhelming 
and that sometimes you know you can you can intervene and the patient can still die and that's like if you look at England for example sepsis is a leading cause of maternal death in England and you know there's abortions legal there for for, for any reason at all there certainly be no question of of doctors feeling that they couldn't intervene to save a mother's life but so what the Irish Times is, is, it did is that they took this story and they put it the most sensationalist headline they could put on it possibly and they said woman denied termination right. in Galway Hospital and so because Savita in the course of talking to a midwife had said oh can we not bring on the miscarriage and the midwife had said well if there's a heart piece there we have to monitor you and she said I think Savita said could she have an abortion and a termination and the midwife said well that that wasn't permissible under Irish law but as, this, as the midwife herself pointed out and she said that this was a Catholic country but as the midwife herself told the coroner who investigated Savita's case that was just part of a chat with 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 um with a patient. It didn't have anything to do with the decisions doctors made in regard to her care. But the Irish Times and other newspapers immediately took the story and tried to say that this woman's life was in danger, but the doctors couldn't intervene because of the Eighth Amendment. Something that is profoundly untrue. You know, and if, if that was true, Jonathan, then Ireland would have a very high maternal mortality rate right. under the Eighth Amendment. Right. Yeah. Well, not right. to mention the fact that any, if any of these stories were happening, it would have been on the front page of every newspaper in the Western world. Yeah, like if for the last 30 years women had presented with sepsis or with cancer or with ectopic pregnancy or with toxemia or any, of, any life-threatening condition, if they had been presented with those cases and the doctors had been afraid to intervene, we would have had a really high maternal mortality rate. You know, but, you know, this is... Why I think sometimes as pro-lifers we have to learn is that the facts don't matter when it comes to media spin. Right. You know, and the reality doesn't matter. And the, the inquiries which found she died because of sepsis, none of that mattered because the media were determined to say this woman died because doctors were not allowed to terminate her pregnancy under the Eighth Amendment, even though all the evidence showed that doctors, you know, and, and when the doctors came in to give evidence about this, they, they, they told various parliamentary inquiries Absolutely, like if a woman comes in, her life's in danger, we terminate the pregnancy, we deliver the baby. Very often we can't save, we can't save the baby. Sometimes we can save the baby. If it's something like preeclampsia and the baby is past viability, you can save the baby too. But, you know, like, you know, as I said, it comes very hard for the truth to be heard when the media has a story like this and they want to push this story to legalize abortion. And that's what happened. And, I mean, the fact that even, in, you know, countries right around the world heard about this story shows the extent that the media, both nationally and internationally, like on a global scale, collaborated with this. Because some of the headlines that, came, that we saw were absolutely, you know, they were so misleading. They were just lies. You know, people saying that in, in Ireland, like, women were dying, were dying because they couldn't get abortions. Like, and the Savita was just one example of that. And, you know, that Savita had had begged in pain for an, when she was in agony for an abortion and she couldn't get one and then she died. Things were just absolutely untrue. You know, it, 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 it's worth repeating this again, Jonathan, I think, so that your listeners understand this. Under the Eighth Amendment, a woman whose life was in danger was absolutely entitled to any intervention she needed to save her life, right. including an intervention which delivered her child, even if that meant the death of the baby, because the woman's life was, was always saved, you know. But, you know, it, it didn't matter. The media just went into absolute overdrive. I think a lot of people were absolutely demonized when I tried to point out the facts, like we were accused of being 
of being um, individuals or groups who would willingly put women's lives in danger. We were accused in in being uh, to blame for the for the death of Savita, that the eight was to blame and that we were to blame um, because of her death. And of course, the woman died tragically because of medical mismanagement, you know, and it should never it should never have happened. But when you took that story then, the story that a woman had died because of the Eighth Amendment, and when you when you looked at the endless media spin on this, it's easy in hindsight to see how this became embedded in the narrative, in the cultural narrative of, of Ireland. You know that people believed it to be true the same way, you know, they, they know the price of milk. Do you know that way? It's just something that they absolutely believe, yeah. and that becomes very, very, very difficult very extraordinarily difficult to shake and that certainty that had been embedded in people's minds even though it was false that absolute certainty that the eighth amendment had killed a woman became like a narrative that became impossible to overcome because the media was so biased and like on this especially in regard to this particular story they would they would include no other narrative you know, they would allow no other narrative. They would allow no challenge to that narrative. And I think in something that we, we looked at earlier, Jonathan, we saw that when you look at uh, RTE, for people who, who are listening to this abroad, RTE is the main newscaster, the television station here in Ireland. It's state-funded, but it's also by far the biggest, and most people will go to it for news. And like their news website, if you type, type in Savita abortion, you get 16,000 um, plus responses. You know, so this is how many times they have they have reported on Savita in relation to abortion. And then if you type in Savita sepsis or medical mismanagement, you get a tiny, tiny fraction of that. You get a couple of hundred stories. You know, so it's that that's that's reflective of the media in this country right across the board on this. It just became something that they said as if it was absolutely true that Savita died because of the Eighth Amendment, and that's what people believed. And when they did exit polls um, in the referendum. One of the most interesting findings, devastating but interesting findings, was that people changed their mind on this issue. In other words, they changed their mind and voted yes to remove the right to life, to remove the Eighth Amendment, not during the campaign, but in the but five years previous. Right, right. And that's precisely at the time that Savita died and that the media built this explosive narrative so you know, there- that this cataclysmic event had happened because of the Eighth Amendment. There's another step here leading up to the Save the Eighth campaign and then the abortion referendum on May 25th. So after the Savita case, mm-hmm. there's obviously there, the, the, the other story that hasn't actually been told much because currently they're heroes is the story of political treachery, where a whole bunch of, of pro-life politicians ran on pro-life platforms and the second they had secured mm-hmm. election, promptly promptly switched and and I. I I, from my perspective here in Canada, one of the one of the the very obvious facts about about your uh, prime minister, uh, Leo Varadkar, is that he was very enamored with our prime minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, <laughs> Justin Trudeau told the media here in Canada that when he was in Ireland, he had pushed uh, Varadkar to legalize abortion, and, yeah. and and the way that this sort of buddy club of you know good looking young progressive prime ministers you know Macron and Trudeau and yours mm-hmm. uh, goes is, is is to be really blunt Verdicar was very obviously embarrassed of his country he was yeah. very obviously embarrassed by Ireland because when he was at Davos he had to sit you know uh, in the in the in the corner because he still ran a country that according to his new friends suppressed women 
uh, despite the fact yeah. that he also ran a country that had the lowest maternal mortality rate, which, of course, never got brought up. But you have these, these politicians flip, and, and there's a couple of different angles to, to possibly consider, because, of course, with the health minister, Simon Harris, who is quite possibly one of the most reptilian elected politicians in, in, in Western democracy, He's, he's just, he, I, I honestly, he, there's very few politicians I have a visceral response to, and he's one of them. Um, because it, it also <laughs> appears like <laughs> abortion is his cause because of the cancer screening yeah. scandal, where you know a whole bunch of women died as a result of mistakes made by his health department. Um, yeah. But he's, he's, he's now the champion of women because he brought in the right to kill you know, girls in the womb. So he's, yeah, in this, this world, that's, that's who he is. So how did the, uh, the, the political betrayal come about? Because despite the shifts in 2012, uh, if there hadn't been a referendum, Ireland would still have the eighth. And it took politicians to bring about that referendum. So how did that, how did that unfold? Well, in the, I mean, they're, they're all actually linked up, Jonathan. That's the, that's the, the awful thing, because you're completely correct about Leo, Leo Varadkar and the Kenny. They're all in a party called Fine Gael, including Simon Harris. And these guys wrote letters to pro-life groups assuring them of how pro-life they were, you know, in, in 2011, when they were looking for votes, and assuring them that abortion would never be legalized, embryo research would never be legalized, the AIDS would never be touched, you know. And somebody said to me once, because Leo Varadkar, who your listeners might have seen, you know, exchanging socks with, with, with your, with your yeah, computer yeah. in the most oh, nauseating, I don't know, seems possible. Um, but he was, was a medical doctor. I don't think he practiced for very long, but he was a medical doctor. And somebody said to me, you know, when he was a doctor, he was pro-life. Now there's a politician who's pro-abortion. Like, you, don't, you needn't say any more about how he thinks. But they, what happened there was that you're absolutely correct. Like, they are coming under this enormous pressure international, internationally. And I think doing their focus groups and always looking to, to, re, to being re-elected firstly, no matter how much Justin Trudeau might approve of how they do things, until, until 2012, until Savita's death. Like, that's why you had people like Andrew Kenny telling time, well, whatever these European courts of the UN says, we're not going to legalize abortion because they knew the public weren't with them. Right. You know, and people say, like, politicians are always downstream from culture. This is, this is if, you like, if you like, an example of that that's a little more complex because here you had politicians, first of all, jump, tripping over themselves to say how pro-life they were. Then Savita's death happened, and they understood that there had been a massive swing in, in the views of Middle Ireland. You know, we talked about this before, Jonathan, how in every country there's a core of people who are very pro-life. And we know now in Ireland that's 33%, because if you could withstand the relentless barrage of propaganda for the last five years and still vote no... You're hardcore. You're yeah. you're you're a core pro-lifer. Like you're somebody who absolutely believes that babies, unborn babies, have a right to life and women deserve better than abortion. And then you have a core of people who are very pro-abortion. And then you have like this mushy middle. And politicians understood before Savita that the mushy middle was more pro-life than it was the other way. You know, and that's why they left the eighth alone. And then Savita happened, and the media and you know the amnesty, the UN. They had been relentless since telling Varadkar, telling Harris, telling all of them, like, you know, your, your, your amendment killed women, killed them. And I think, you see, until that point, like, I mean, you know, you know, people, abortion campaigns could say all they wanted, oh, pro-life laws suppress women, oh, pro-life laws are, are unfair to women, oh, but I don't think people really bought it. Right, But after right. the visa died, people believed this narrative that pro-life laws killed at least one woman and maybe more. Right. You know, that way, because then they began to say there were other cases as well. So for Faradka and Harris and those, um, 
you know, they decided they they went then with, with that position, but they didn't just go with it. As you saw when you were here, they adopted it wholeheartedly. And for people living in Ireland now, their, our health service is an absolute shambles. Like they, they announced today that one million people out of a, out of a, in a country with only four million people, so one in every four people is on a waiting list in the health service. Yeah, that's crazy. There are tens of thousands of sick children waiting on operations. There are old people going blind, like in a first world country, because the waiting lists are so long for simple things like cataracts. Right, and Harris like, wants to make sure that northern, northern, the northern yeah. Irish can get abortions. Yeah. And all Harris talks about is abortion. It's all he tweets about, it's all he talks about, it's all he's ever in the media about is abortion. And he seems to want to, not only, now that he's governed the AIDS, he seems to want to maximize the number of abortions that can happen. Like he's refusing to outlaw abortion and disability grounds. He's saying that women from the north of Ireland can come down here to the south and get abortions, probably for free. Like, it's absolutely appalling and, and actually really disgusting to see this. You know, in this, at a time when the health service is an absolute crisis, when, as you, as you pointed out, women have got cancer and have died because of the mistakes of the health service. And a lot of women, like scores of women, have got cancer and died. Other people are really sick and can't get treated. People are, so, are paying a huge price because of the mess this government, including Varadkar and Harris, have made of the health service. But the media gives Harris a free ride because he's the minister for abortion and he's doing everything they want them to him. He's doing everything they want done in regards to that issue. So when the referendum got announced. Um, I know you guys, you guys hit the hit the hit the ground running, and you guys had already been knocking on doors, talking to people. What I would say for a couple of years, but since 1992, really getting out there and talking to people. Um, so, what was describe the Save the Eighth campaign? A lot of people saw your social media. I don't even know how many mm. different Facebook pages you guys have. But when I was when I was in your guys' office, I saw the one guy running the social media pages, and he, and he looked like his head was ready to explode because of the number of pages he was updating simultaneously, <laughs> uh, the number of videos that were that were going up. Like it seemed like there was like twenty or thirty things going on, you know, by like by lunchtime every day. Um, yeah. So how did you guys get this massive campaign off the ground in a country of four million people? I think it's probably fair to say that almost everybody in the country saw something from you guys at some point. They did, and sometimes I think people people might look at that. I, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the campaign now and, and how, like, the preparation for it, I suppose. And really, if, if we look at that first, because everybody knew the referendum was coming. So we set up something, I think you're doing something similar there, Jonathan, called the Life Canvas, where we trained thousands of people to go door-to-door to talk to people about about this issue, about the Eighth Amendment and about the need to, to, to save the Eighth Amendment and why abortion wasn't the answer. And, you know, some of the people, I think, might look at that, and it was a huge effort. You know, it was a huge amount yeah. of local meetings, incredible amount of people became involved. They were so self-sacrificial, you know, because it's, it's hard to drag yourself out in a cold winter's evening and go to door-to-door and talk to people. Sometimes people don't want to listen, and, some, and but very often they do. But incredibly rewarding. But people, might, I think, might look at that and look at all the billboard campaigns, look at all the social media campaigns, the roadshows, the rallies. Like, it, it, was a, it was a massive campaign, and it was all-encompassing. And I think it involved a huge amount of people, like sports stars and singers and teachers of parents of children with disabilities. You know, it was a... It, it was a real grassroots civil society campaign. And I think people might look at that and all of the effort and the money that was spent and the huge amount of hours that were put in. And the, the output on social media, which was, which was pretty, which was, I think, to my mind anyway, first class. 
You know, like you have right. oh, yeah. an awful lot of personal. Yeah, like I mean, the personal stories on social media I thought were beautiful. They were widely shared. A lot of organic growth. Kind of the commentary, the videos which kind of commented on. On, on the proposals, on the importance of the aid, on the contrast to other jurisdictions, like what would ha- had it happened in Britain. They were all really, really well received. And I think sometimes people think, oh, but what was the point, you know, when you lost by such a landslide? But I would say a couple of things about that. One, I think that if you look um, at some of the polling that was done around the time of Savita's case, you know, you're looking at results like 88% of people wanted to get rid of the aid. You know, because they thought it had killed somebody. Yep. Like, and so, you know, that kind of, again, I know I keep coming back to this, but that kind of absolute certainty is, you know, is what, is what causes cultural shifts. You know, they thought it had actually done something really dreadful. So bringing that kind of, you know, the high 80s down to 66% is an achievement, even though it mightn't seem like one. We did shift a block of people there or make people, I think, understand the, uh, the real truth there. But secondly, I think a lot of the yes vote were reluctant voters. You know, there weren't people, and you could see that in the exit polls, and you can see it in every single poll right up to the referendum. Only a small minority of people, sometimes as low as 18, sometimes as high as maybe 35% of Irish people see themselves as being pro-choice. Do you know that way? And certainly the campaign helped that. That that didn't spill out and become uh, the majority viewpoint. And they were reluctant yes voters, and that they kind of thought, well, I'm going to vote yes on these hard cases, but I don't necessarily agree with a lot of what the other side are saying. You know, so Ireland, I think, went from a position of an absolute ban on abortion and, like, held that line for 50 years when most of the countries had fallen. And I think when that happens, sometimes the swing goes hard against that law. That's right. I don't know if you've seen that elsewhere, Jonathan, you know, because... Well, we have no laws at all. So you'll you'll still be in a better position than we are. (laughs) You don't know at all. But I think when you've, when you've held that position and so much is thrown against that position, you know, that, 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 so this, that position here was the Eighth Amendment. When everything is thrown against that then, oh, the Eighth Amendment causes rape victims to suffer, the Eighth Amendment causes women to die, the Eighth Amendment interferes in medical treatment, the Eighth Amendment is, like some of the headlines were so ludicrous, the Eighth Amendment forced, was the call, the Eighth Amendment, doctors used the Eighth Amendment to force me to have a cesarean, like just absolute lies, you know. And um, the swing comes, I think, can come hard then in, in terms of the kind of landslide that we saw on May 25th. But, you know, a lot of those were our reluctant yes voters. And I think the campaign helped to make them reluctant yes voters. And that is, that is something. That's something that you can, you can build on. Because if, if you just had a situation where uh, 32% of people are pro-life and all of the rest of them are pro-choice, that's a hard, hard basis to start any kind of a claw back on in terms of restricting things, in terms of eventually yeah. overturning things. But where you have a situation where you know you have thirty three percent absolutely on your side, perhaps the same on the other side, and then you've got these people in the middle who did did listen to some of what you said, but then were overcome, I think, by the emotional arguments that the eighth had ki- actually killed somebody. You, you, can, you still have hope, I think, to swing um, them back in the long term. And you wouldn't have that, that hope, I think, if you hadn't ran a campaign which like, persisted on the ground, which persisted like, for so many years in trying to explain facts to people. Because I do think that all those interactions were like kind of seeds and they mightn't all have borne fruit on May 25th, but they're still there. Hopefully, we can we can harvest some good from them in the years to come. Well, for sure, because there's there's a couple of stories here, right? So the story that everybody wants to know 
uh, is, okay, well, so how did, how did abortion activists win the referendum on May 25? Um, and mm. that question, I think, is, is, is very well answered, uh, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but by what happened with Savita and that, and that shift, yeah. um, when it kind of came to the media, when it came to foreign money, there's, there's really obvious answers to that question. The story mm. of how pro-life activists in a first world Western country kept abortion out for 35 years is a, a much better question, and one that I think is, is extremely hopeful, uh, at least from our perspective over mm. here, um, is look, for 33% of people in a first world Western country voted to keep abortion out altogether. Right? This wasn't on some you know, law at 12 weeks in some southern American state. This was keep it out altogether. And then uh, reading through the analysis that, that, that you guys at Life Institute put out on the referendum as well, um, one of the points you had made was that uh, voter turnout uh, what did, not, did not benefit the no side. Um, yeah. which is something that I, I had worried about because I saw that myself that so many of the people that um, I, we met at the door, older people, uh, would, would say things like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely with you, but those are also the kind of people who tend not to go out and vote or tend to be forgetful or tend to have to line up a ride to the polls and therefore don't do it. And then, of course, finally, they're the kind of people who really don't think things can change that much. Right, a lot of people woke up, I think, on May 26, and didn't recognize and yeah. didn't recognize the country they lived in because they, especially the older people, simply did not think that it could happen. Right, and I think they felt betrayed uh, by a younger generation. But going to door to door was was I think that what you're saying is is absolutely correct because one of the things that the canvas teams that I was on, um, going door to door was that the people who would the people who were undecided would listen to the canvassers. Um, so there was people who were yes and wouldn't talk about it. And would just say very politely, I'm voting yes, close the door, that was that. And the people who were voting no were relieved to see us. We had one guy throw the door open and say, I've been effing waiting for you guys for three weeks. <laughs> because he said that the, uh, the yes campaigners had been through a couple of times and he'd just been waiting to, you know, open the door to somebody who supported him in his point of view. And then he just kind of, you know, vented and had catharsis by chatting with us. But the people who had no idea and just had questions, those people were very, were very persuadable. But one of the, the things I thought that was exceptional about how many people voted to retain the Eighth Amendment was uh, especially, <laughs> and, and you can kind of tell our listeners what happened there, but hundreds of thousands of pamphlets didn't get delivered by the mail service because they made up some garbage about missing a deadline or something like that. Um, and so a bunch of us just, uh, t- we took our rental vehicle and we loaded up with pamphlets and we just started going out yeah. and delivering them door to door, right? And I remember opening these mailboxes and putting the pamphlet in, and in the mailbox you'd see, you know, a couple of newspapers, you'd see a pamphlet urging a yes vote in the referendum from one or two political parties, and then an abortion mm-hmm. campaign. And you'd think, like, look, there's there's us with our, please, yeah. you know, read this pamphlet, read what really happened with Savita, read what abortion's really all about. And then there was the media, the politicians, everybody else was telling them that we were lying. Oh, you, you, I mean, you're making exactly what you're saying there is 100% true, true Jonathan, because, I mean, I think one thing people should understand is that, and this is important in terms of other country and looking at who the campaigners on the other side are, is like the abortion campaigners didn't win the referendum. You know, like, and I, you know this because you were here, Jonathan, yeah. they were on a pretty lame campaign. And they, because, you know, this country previously had a referendum on same-sex marriage, and that was like every celebrity in town was in it, every granny in town was in it. There was like this massive surge. And they, they failed to get anything like that, even with kind of celebs and people like that, because I think people, 
like there was a reluctance to, for people to support this campaign. But their campaign was like it didn't have any great central messages. It was very slow getting out of the blocks. Like it, the newspapers here were sharp, very critical of them. You know, saying like, "Where are you? What are you doing?" Like, you know, yeah. the No Side had been out for months, even years. They had they had no ground campaign. Like it wasn't a grassroots campaign, but. They had everything else. That's, you know, they, they didn't. Win, they didn't need to win the referendum no, they didn't. because the media had already won it for them. You know, and it, it was funny. I think the media needed them to come out and do some kind of a campaign to try to justify. But the media is absolutely biased. But the, the, you know, they, they needn't have bothered because the media had won this for them five years ago, and it was five years relentless media bias on Savita and on the fact that the AIDS was the worst thing in the world. And it was funny because Leo Varadkar. The Prime Minister gave this pathetic statement where he said this was a quiet revolution. Really? No, oh, yeah. A revolution is normally where you know the, the minority or where the oppressed people rise up against the establishment. This was the establishment. This this was like the political parties, the United Nations, the trade unions, the media, all of the elites in society. But do you know what they that, were you know that all term on the side? Do you know what that term? <laughs> do you know what the term "quiet revolution" traditionally refers to? No. And this made me suspicious about what he talked about with Justin Trudeau. So in, in, in Canada, the quiet revolution is an actual event that now gets used to describe other things. And it's when overwhelmingly Catholic Quebec um, basically completely lost their faith over 10 to 15 years in the 60s and early 70s and went from oh. the most religious part of our country to the most secular. It is now the most pro-abortion part of our country, and it has the highest abortion rate. And that's referred to as, yeah. as the quiet revolution. And so when Leo Varadkar referred to the quiet revolution, there was a bunch of us here that were thinking, well, that's, that's kind of suspicious. Okay. Justin Trudeau is from Quebec. Right. Yeah, and yeah, so he he chose those words carefully, obviously. So we're meaning it's probably it's probably his little message to Justin on the day, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, exactly. it was such a joke. You know, a, a revolution, my eyes. But as I said, like I mean, their posters and their leaflets and their and they've performed really poorly in the media debates, everything like that. Oh like, yeah. None of that actually mattered. You know, what mattered was that they, the media had already done a sterling job in convincing people. That and, and I think they knew that. Women. Like the sense we got yeah. on, the, on the streets the last couple of weeks, because we were on the Vote No Road show for a couple of weeks, right, and canvassing, is that the yes campaigners just didn't want to screw it up. Like, they would be out there, and there would be like four or five of them and like 50 of us, which is why they, yeah. the, the media nicknamed the pro-life campaigners the Red Army. Um, mm. And, and, and we, we would even try to talk to them. I tried to talk to a few of them, and they would just say, well, we're not really here to engage. In other words, <laughs> like, we don't need to actually answer questions yeah. to discuss our point of view. We just don't want to mess this up in any way. And same thing with their, their, their signs, right? Um, was in that one debate that went really well for the Save the Eighth campaign in the last week, no, no, second last mm -hmm. week, where mm -hmm. the, one of the last questions was, on all of your signs right across the country, why does the word abortion never show up? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like absolutely, and I suppose the, the lesson for for us in all of that is that, like, to be honest, because you asked me also, like, how do we keep it out for this long? And the yeah. media has been like, you know, rapidly pro-abortion for since I was a teenager, in, in that they've been unfair, and that they have an actual visible bias, you know, that way, and that they. They very rarely give pro-life people a uh, platform. When they do, they're incredibly aggressive. That you're, you know, you saw this in the campaign. Like, you know, you'd have a doctor on from, from the yes side, from the pro-abortion side, and they'd, they would just ask, you know, softball questions. And then we would come on, so we would come on, and they would, you know, 
grill us on rape and throw all kinds of accusations at us, you know. So it's not, it's not just whether you get a platform or not, it's the approach and the tone of the media and everything like that. But I, I do think that despite that, I mean, even despite their absolute bias, until they got the certainty that they could spin in relation to Savita's tragic death, they, they couldn't swing that middle ground. And to me, that's a, a lesson to... To, for everybody, including ourselves, you know, is not to give up hope. Because if they hadn't been able to manipulate her death in that way, we'd probably still have the Eighth Amendment. Oh, and yeah. you could see that in the campaign because in the last couple of weeks, the polls were all sliding our way. You, you, you saw this when you were yeah. here, Jonathan. Yep. And the, they, they completely panicked. And, you know, it, it, they put up posters of Savita's face. That's when her face came they out. Went yep. over to India. Yeah, they went over to India and got a video of her parents asking for a yes vote. All the conversations from from the leading pro-abortion campaigners like Varadkar, Harris, Peter Boyle, and all of them, it was all about that the Eighth Amendment was, was killing women. And they knew they needed to do that to bring, people, to bring the attention of the middle ground back to the Eighth Amendment had killed a woman again, rather than talking about what getting rid of the Eighth Amendment would actually mean. So... From that, I think, you, know, you asked, like, how did we keep it out? We kept it out by keeping the reality of abortion central in people's minds. Right. You know, so when people talked about abortion, and I think you can see some of that in the reluctant yes vote. People, you know, I always said, people make a face when they talk about abortion in Ireland. You probably saw that at the door. Mm-hmm. They know that it's a bad thing. They don't think it's just part of health care. You know, they don't think that it's, um, it's something that's, that should be just offered freely and made and made freely available despite the vote on May 25th like the majority of people don't believe that that it's you know there's something good about abortion and I think that that was the mindset of the majority of Irish people because they understood the reality of it and they understood that it it, it killed children that it harmed women and that they, that you can provide a better answer and I think those three things were all equally important Jonathan you know never flinching from the reality of it. You know, when you talk, when you, when you show abortion or when you talk about abortion, that you explain what it does. Mm-hmm. Do you know, that you explain that it, that it is something that tears a child apart. Yep. Tears a child apart, tears a child from its mother's womb, dumps that little body in the trash. And that's why it's a terrible thing. Well, it's not a terrible thing. Of course, it is just a medical procedure. Yep. It's a terrible thing because it brutally ends a baby's life. And it's also a terrible thing because it absolutely fails women. You know, and I, I mean, I have four daughters, I have four sisters, I believe this so passionately, and I think that's a message that the media completely downplays, you know, because they don't want women to hear this message, and that works for them. Like, in the turnout, you had a lot of men didn't vote, more women than normal voted, because women were made to feel that, you know, supporting abortion was a thing that you needed to do to support women, when, in fact, the absolute opposite is true. It's a complete failure to offer women anything better, and it's a complete cop-out for the worst kind of men. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, Absolutely what it is, you know, and that, and that we should demand better than that. You know, if we're a society that's actually meant to be caring and compassionate and progressive, we should demand better than that. And like they, those messages, I think, were heard very clearly, but they just became completely overwhelmed by the narrative that the Eighth Amendment had, had killed Savita. And that narrative, if you like, was, was hammered home not in the referendum campaign, not just about Savita's death, but other cases were brought up then, um, there was a lot of spin on social media, like stories with no foundation whatsoever, where women, where you know, anonymous women were making all kinds of accusations about, you know, that they were forced to undergo cesareans or that they were, this happened or they were, they didn't deny proper medical treatment because of the Eighth Amendment, and it just became, 
like impossible for the truth to be heard yeah. in that context. And the one thing yeah. that I, you, anybody who's worked in media knows is if those stories were true, they would have been on TV, the women would have identified themselves. Like, yeah. it's, it's the same thing. Like, recently in Canada, they, they, they legislated some bubble zones around abortion clinics, right, where so okay. to basically eliminate the ability to sidewalk counsel. And they, they kept saying women face all kinds of abuse when they go to the abortion clinic. And they couldn't name yeah. a single example, which is why you know they didn't have any. Because if they did, it would be on the front page of every paper for a week straight, right? But they just sort of invent okay. the narrative that they want they want to happen. And that was very much happening last month. Like, like I told you before, when we were out canvassing the last day, they put up the sign to announce where the polling station was, and there was a Savita picture up on a pole right in front of the door within 20 minutes. It was yeah. that fast. Yeah. Like, absolutely. And I think, I think we, we have to learn from this. Like, as I said, I don't think the media had the power to move Middle Ireland until they got this story. And once people believe that it had happened once, they just, I think, unquestioningly accepted even all the anonymous stuff, the stuff on media, on social media. The things were, to be honest, quite obviously fake. People just believed them because they had already believed that the Eighth Amendment had, had killed Savita. But I think one of the lessons for us is that, I mean, you know, even despite the results of May 25th, like Tim Jackson said something beautiful after it when he said, I think, who will inherit the land? Mm-hmm. You know, the people who kill their children through abortion are the, are the people who love and cherish all of their children. Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth in that, but that's a long-term plan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we have never, we are in a very unusual, I think unprecedented and extraordinary situation now in the world where so many people either never have a child or abort the children that they would have had. Like it's 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 it's, a, it's completely unprecedented, Jonathan. You know the, the kind of situation we were in, and I do think like demographics and the fact that pro-life people have families might bring around social change like within our within our lifetime just through dem- demographics alone. But you can't rely on that, and you no. certainly can't just sit back and do nothing while that's happening. Yeah. But I think the other thing that I think is is absolutely clear to us was that we have to in Ireland set up some kind of truthful stroke conservative media, you know, because there is nothing here. You know, I think, I, I think even in Canada, you might have some kind of a conservative broadcasting network. And in the States, people might have different views about Fox or whoever else is there. But there are a lot of outlets who will let the pro-life message be heard, or at least even be fair. In Ireland, we have nothing. Right. Like, and we've had nothing. for So there was no major media outlet who would contradict the lies that were told around maternal safety, around offering better solutions, you know, for women, or letting pro-life personal stories be heard. You know, cause an issue that comes up came up very often in the referendum, and you know this is, and it comes up everywhere because it's such a, a complex and difficult issue is for somebody who becomes pregnant through rape. And as you know, as I was saying to you before, this incredibly brave woman, like who had been in this situation, who had become pregnant when she was after rape when she was just 13. And she had been brought to England by the state for an abortion. And she shared her story, an incredibly brave thing to do. And the media almost completely ignored her. Yeah. You know, because she was saying, you know, the abortion for me was harder to get over than the rape. And I think the Eighth Amendment should stay there. I think women like me would just be pushed into abortion instead of being offered a better option. The media almost completely ignored her. And you had, like, you know, senior doctors on the other side and politicians saying the only way to help these women only way to help rape victims is to get rid of the Eighth Amendment. Like absolute emotional blackmail. So, you know, obviously there's an alternative view to that, and there are very powerful stories on our side, but if we don't have a media network 
you know, that, that speaks to the middle ground. So we are always, I think, either speaking to the converted or speaking to a small section of society, and I think that desperately needs to change in Ireland. Yeah, well, one of the things that, I think the first thing my wife said after a couple of days out in the, on the, on the roadshow, and, you know, when people see Ireland, um, you know, they often remark at how green it is and how beautiful mm-hmm. it is, and the first thing she noticed was there's so many kids here. Uh, And that's the difference between a country like ours, where abortion's been legal throughout all nine months of pregnancy before either my wife or I were born, and an abortion rate of one in four versus an abortion rate of one in 19. And that that difference is, is, is obviously visible. And that's why so many people fought so long and, and so hard. And, and, like what the last couple of nights, <laughs> like well, I, what, what time did we get to the, the office in Dublin? I think it was like 11:30 p.m. and almost That's everybody amazing. was still there. Little baby. And they could they could barely, they could barely they like nobody could stand up. Yeah, they and they all they all just took my daughter and sort of passed her around because baby therapy oh. in the pro life movement is is is, uh, is always necessary. Um, but then the next day, uh, the next day we flew out the day of the referendum, and I, I I kind of know how people responded because we of course were were messaging with them, and there's a WhatsApp chat for the Vote No Roadshow group. But yeah. what was that what was that day like for for all of you guys at the office, if I can ask? Well, I'm going to be totally honest with you and say that it was absolutely devastating. Yeah. You know, like people were and are, and I include my, myself in this, absolutely brokenhearted. And it wasn't for ourselves. Right. It was because, you know, something incredibly important and precious had been lost. And we, we, under, we understand, like, we know what that means. It means... It's not just a political battle. You know, it's not like you lose an election and your candidate doesn't get in and you're upset about that. It's nothing like that at all. This was something that was important and precious and we wanted to hold on to because it protected, like, the most vulnerable people of all unborn, like these tiny babies. And we knew what would happen to those babies now. I mean, we knew what would happen to women now. And, like, knowing that made losing absolutely devastating. It wasn't, the upset wasn't because the campaign was lost. The upset was because something infinitely precious, you know, had been lost. And I think, I think to be honest, not just to Ireland, but maybe to the world as well. But for us living in Ireland, you know, something that we had sustained and cherished and protected for so long, you know, to protect both mother and child, and that that had been voted down by the people was devastating it was absolutely heartbreaking and i think that that the people were complicit in it and i know many of them were were fooled and deceived and i know many of them will probably go on to regret their vote but the truth is is that they they are complicit in it you know and that every abortion like bears their stamp that's a reality that that they have to live with but that we have to live with too because um the reality of abortion is is terrible and cruel and relentless and losing the referendum on May 25th meant that was going to be a reality in our country as well. So people were, I mean, they were, you saw what, you know, and, and you guys were absolutely heroes in this as well. I mean, and we've talked about this, these people put in a heroic effort to protect children who were not their own. You know, it was absolutely yeah. selfless, her, her, like heroic effort made by people. And in losing, like, you know, what they lost was 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 heartbreaking what they lost was devastating because it's something you know that we've seen everywhere is very very hard to claw back 
you know, we were we were in line to get on the plane, and I was still getting messages, you know, from Tim who said, "Go out, find people to vote." You know, just like no, nobody stopped until there was nothing left to do, and they were almost too tired to stand at that point. And it was just, I remember thinking when I when I saw the first numbers that that they didn't. The SI just they didn't deserve to win. Even the issue aside, yeah. they they just didn't compare to the people that we had the opportunity to work with. And we we had we were just there for a few weeks. They had been doing this for months, day in day out. Right? Tim was the first one up in the morning on the road show and, and, yeah. the, la- and the last one to bed. And he'd been doing this for months. Right? Uh, <laughs> I keep on saying Tim because just uh, get, you know getting to getting to work under his leadership for a couple of weeks. Just uh, Tim is almost everybody's oh, favorite. Oh, he's a hero. Absolutely. Yeah, we all love him. Yeah. and a real um, leader and people and a huge inspiration to, to people and and you know the, the, the great thing is so gentle I don't think one person regrets one moment they spent on the campaign right. No, you know, I mean, they, they are, I say to my girls, like, you know, my kids, that you will never meet nicer people than pro-life people. And, and that is, is true in terms of being selfless, giving, kind, compassionate, and really decent and lovely people. You know, you'll, you'll never meet better. And I don't think anyone regrets, like, a moment of the time. I think what, what broke their heart is just the reality of what will follow. Right. You know, and, and I think also for many people, you know, the fact that it was so it was so unfair. This was this was never a fair fight. Right. And that, you know, it was David versus a thousand Goliaths. Right. You know, the entire yep. establishment, the media, the money, the money that came in from George Soros and Chuck Feeney, the relentlessly unfair like a, approach of, of the establishment to all of this, the lies that were spun. And I think what might have been very devastating for people too was that that won. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That yeah. if you lie often enough, if you're relentless and ruthless enough in how much you will lie, that you can win. Yeah. And I think people people found that upsetting too. But, you know, the great thing about these people is because they're not doing this for themselves, is they're all still involved, you know. They all need a time to grieve, to be honest. That's right, yeah. You know, everyone, I think, just, it's like... Uh, <laughs> Someone said to me, it wasn't like a death with him. It was like your whole family died. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, well, I thought there was a, a horrible greater truth than that, you know, because it, it was just, um, my brother said that it was a wound to the soul. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it was, that's what it felt like, like a, like a wound, a, yeah. a, a terrible, awful calamity. When I was messaging but with Tim, he, he kind of referred to it as an identity crisis. Like, I'm Irish and I love Ireland. And now yeah. what does that mean now after May 25? Yeah, you know, and I like Tim. I'm like Tim. I'm a very patriotic Irish person, woman. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah, I've, yeah. I've always been that way. I make no qualms about it. And we just had this commemoration two years ago of 1916 and 1916 Rising, and those people to me are all heroes, absolute heroes. You know, like, like we, we read those accounts out to our kids when they're little. Like, they're, right. you know, they're <laughs> absolutely amazing. And they were all such decent people. Like, and, you know, the leaders were all generally very religious and very Catholic. And, and they believed in like a fair and a decent and a compassionate society, and that's what they wanted. That's they wanted a break to from England to have a society that reflected all of that. And you know, they must they must be turning in their graves. <laughs> I hope that somehow they're shielded from the knowledge of, of what their country has made of their sacrifice. You know, because to be honest, Jonathan, like on on May 25th, for the first time in my entire life. You know, and I'm saying this as a as a proud and patriotic and patriotic Irish woman. Like I was ashamed to be Irish. It was a it was a bad feeling. That's a feeling that you those know? of us in some other countries are, are all too familiar with, and for precisely the same yeah. reasons. But to end on a on a, on a more encouraging note, because all those people that I met, um, they're still there, and and they're still willing. 
to fight for the life of every single preborn baby. Life Institute's not going anywhere. Youth defense mm-hmm. isn't going anywhere. So mm-hmm. uh, once the, the grief process, you know, is completed and once people start looking forward, I, I was on the Vote No, on the Vote No Roadshow chat, for example, after the, the referendum was lost, there was just message after message coming in from all these different people saying, you know, I'm, I'm so glad I met you. I'm glad we did this. And then yeah. people were heartbroken. And then um, Tim didn't say anything for a little bit. And you could tell he was taking it really hard. And then he just mentioned, like, just thanks to everybody, and I love you so much. And then the first message that popped up was just, um, all right, Captain Tim, what's next? We'll go anywhere you ask us to. And then it was just me too, me too, me too, me too. And I I, 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 I kind of looked at that. I'm like, I, I needed that because it's just like, well, there you go, right? All these people who fought so hard and got 33% of the population to vote to keep abortion illegal. And I bet there's a lot more people uh, who were spoken to who were pro-life and a, a lot of, as you say, reluctant yes voters. Those people are right there, and they've also they've yeah. also become a sort of family. There is something about doing pro-life work together in the trenches like that that creates a relationship that I don't think the abortion movement can understand because they're sort of bound together through well bitterness and and, and unity over yes. a, a profoundly ugly cause. Um, yes, that's why they they just they look so unhappy and bitter and angry as opposed to the the pro-lifers, right? Like just go to this. Well, what was the Save the Eights uh, Instagram page and take a look at the pictures yeah. and I'll tell you everything you need to know. So what's next for this, this army of people who joined you on the campaign to Save the Eighth? Yeah, because, th- you know, during the campaign there were so many people who had such passionate and intense, you know, support of, for the pro-life message in the movement and in the Save the Eighth campaign that they became known as the Red Army yeah, in the yeah. media. And I think one of the things that took the media by surprise was we had a, a march to Save the Eighth in, in the month of March, um, just before the referendum, a couple of months before the referendum, and I know this incredible crowd, like 100,000 people came, and somebody said to me afterwards, who's really an observer, not really involved in the movement, he said, like, the intensity on that march. And I yeah. said, what do you mean? He goes, like, these people really, really care. Yeah. And I think there's an intensity gap between the amount of people who really, really care about protecting mothers and babies from abortion uh-huh. and those who really, really care about abortion being legalized. And those who, abort- who want abortion to be legalized might have the media and the money, and they might have right now won a majority. But I don't think they, they had that same intensity. And if we can hold on to that intensity, that absolute passion for the cause, we'll get back the middle ground. And we need to do that, though, in a way that involves building a new media, that involves like, making sure people who go to something like Catholic schools understand why abortion is wrong. Right. Because you had some dreadful stats coming from exit polls, 33% of mass-going Catholics voted yes. Like, you know, what, what's missing there? What's absent there? What do we do to plug that gap? But when you have so many people, like in a small country to have thousands of people and, you know, tens of thousands on a march to stop abortion, that's a kind of energy and passion and, and that you can't let dissipate you have to harness that and keep right. that alive yep. because it's such an amazing thing and it was, it was i mean it was amazing in even on the day of the of the, of the, of the result when people were you know when people found it difficult to speak they were so broken-hearted and you know to be honest Jonathan, people were just in, in floods of tears it was, it yeah. was a bad day but just like what just like as you said like the messages were coming in we're not done we'll fight on you know yep. what, what do we do next 
And yeah. it, was, it was incredible, incredible to see that spirit, incredible to see people saying, you know, they might have won this battle, but, but they haven't won the war, and we're not going anywhere, and we're not giving in. And I think we're, we're taking time to, to, uh, to draw together a plan, to, to, because we've always been a movement, and I think it's one of the reasons we've been so successful in Ireland. We've never been a top-down movement. You know, we've always been a movement that wants to hear everybody's voice, wants to hear everybody's ideas, and a movement that's completely based on activism and reaching out and talking to people. And we want to get everybody's ideas now at this point, get all those ideas, get all those thoughts, get all that feedback, and make a plan for what we're going to to do next. Because, you know, they might have voted down the 8th, but now they're going to begin in a regime Uh that we can attack with the same kind of fervor that we attack the 8th. You know? And defending is always hard. Yeah, that, and that is true. Do you know what I mean? So now they are going to have legalized abortion, and that will bring a whole lot, a host of horrors with it. That, and we have to be there to continually expose that, to continually point to that, to point out what, what removing the eighth has actually resulted in, you know, and to point out why this is not good for mother or for baby, and to keep demanding a better alternative. And, you know, that is true. Like, when you're always trying to defend, that can be tougher. Well, they might have won this battle, but I think you know, in the end we'll win the war because what they are now trying to defend is absolutely horrific. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Neve Ivrian, who is one of Ireland's most impressive pro-life activists. She's been doing this for years. She's the co-founder of the organization Youth Defense, and I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from them in the years to come. This show is brought to you by Total Rentals. If any of you want to check out any of our other shows, you can head over to thebridgehead.ca. We're on YouTube, we're on iTunes, we're on SoundCloud. You can just look for The Bridgehead uh, on social media. You can just search for my name or look for The Bridgehead. And we have a lot of, of great interviews for you. Thanks so much for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again soon.